You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Amen. So uh, a number of you, and understandably so, have uh, come up to me in this last week, last couple weeks, and, and basically said, are you still here? <laughs> Thought you were leaving for sabbatical. And yes, I am leaving for sabbatical, and I must not have announced it clearly when I mentioned that last time, but I'm going to be leaving at the end of the month. So you're stuck with me for a few more weeks, okay? But, uh, but again, I just so appreciate the gift that you are giving to me and the staff to give us opportunity to, to participate in that and to do that. I'll be back into November, but in the meantime, as I'm preparing for this sabbatical and getting things in motion here for me to be gone, it's just really causing me to reflect on, you know, 31 years of being a pastor, 18 years being here. And in thinking through those things, I, I was reminded of really how I got my start as a pastor. I had just graduated from, from college with a degree in speech communication, got to come back to the, really what was my home church, which church basically that I had grew up in during high school. And uh, their middle school ministry pastor role opened up right as I was graduating. And that's a whole other amazing story with how all that worked out. But I was asked to consider being the middle school pastor through my hat in the ring, got hired to do that. And so here we were into the summer. And uh, we were trying to just get some momentum to pull our middle school ministry students back together. And so I had planned a series of events, and the first event was happening. And I was so excited. I'd put so much time and prayer and thought and effort into making this just really a great event. But I'd been gone for four years at college, so I knew virtually none of these students. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And so one by one, cars began to pull into the parking lot, and students began to get out. And I was really, really committed to learning their names and especially learning the names of the parents and just locking those away and just trying to settle those right out of the gate. And so this one car, this one car drives up with this one family and evidently dad is driving and in the back are two students. And so they, they pull up and um, door opens up and out comes the first student and her name's Elizabeth. And I said, oh, hi, my name's Jay and I'm the new middle school pastor. So glad you came to our event tonight. You know, just head in through the doors and we're gonna get started in just a bit. And the other student just sat there. And I thought, well, that's a little odd. And then she got out, of the, got out of the car and got back in the car, in the passenger seat. And I thought, now that's really odd. She must be shy. And so I went up to the window and kind of knocked on the window. And she rolled down the window. And I said, you know, we're really glad that you're here too. And you're more than welcome to come to this. I mean, there's no reason to, to be shy. You know, we're all getting to know one another here. And she, there's this awkward silence, right? And I said, no, really, you can come. And at that point, her husband kind of leans over and looks at me and says, that's my wife. <laughs> you ever had one of those moments where you wish you were someone else? Anyone else? Anyone but me? Or you wish, Jesus, come back now. Now is a good time to just, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. It was an epic fail. Just an epic fail. And I thought, okay, well, you know, she's probably never going to come back again. This family's probably just visiting. They came to our church the next 14 years, right? So well down the road, we had a pretty good laugh about that. But I just, I just felt so awful. I mean, here I had these good intentions, and I was working so hard, and it was just a colossal fail. That ever happened to you? 
And all you're going, no, that's a you thing, Jay. We've never done anything like that. I mean, come on, right? But of course you have. You do something with the best of intentions, hard work, maybe even dedication and commitment, and you just, you come up short. Or even to take it a step further. We, we have those moments when we, for those of us especially who know the Lord, we default back to our brokenness, back to our sinfulness. It's not our true identity, but it's this identity that just sometimes sucks us back into it. And we do something profoundly selfish, profoundly sinful, really, and, and we end up failing ourselves, failing other people, feeling like we've, we've failed God. You know, that, that job that, that you got fired from because you deserved it. Or, or that relationship that went south because, you know, you, you did something selfish. That, that divorce that you endured. And, you know, we could just go on and on and on, but we're broken people living in a broken world who desperately need the grace and empowerment of this, this amazing God that we worship. But sometimes those things happen. And if you've ever failed, if you're currently doing business with some type of failure in your life right now, this message is for you today. This is a story about really, there's no other way to categorize it, an epic fail. Peter fails himself and he fails Jesus. And that there's tremendous hope and tremendous perspective. So if you need hope today, if you need encouragement today, man, this, this passage is for you. So now for those of you who maybe haven't been with us, we've been in the, the gospel of John and now we come to John chapter 18. And this is even for folks who aren't Jesus followers, this is a, this is a familiar passage to many because it's where Peter will deny Jesus not once and not twice, but but three times, and yet we see the work of God in all this. And so we, if you have a Bible, have your phone, just open it up to John 18, and we're gonna begin to dive into this amazing story. We're just gonna work through it piece by piece. So, so here we go. It's the last night of Jesus' life. He's just finished praying this amazing prayer for the disciples, and then this is, this is what happens. So when he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So that word Kidron literally means dark. And John is deliberately putting some foreshadowing together here for us. So Jesus goes into the valley of dark or darkness. And in this valley was a garden, and we know from the other Gospels, and those of you who are familiar with this story know it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. So Jesus now is going into the valley of darkness to be pressed. And this is a picture of the Kidron Valley when we were in Israel in 2016. That upper picture there are some olive trees they believe date over a thousand years old. They don't go back to the time of Jesus, but they're incredibly ancient old. And that's in the courtyard of what's known as the Church of All Nations. And these other two pictures are a picture of the Kidron Valley from the old, old city of Jerusalem. So you're looking out from the Eastern Gate and uh, that Church, that picture of the, the olive grove and the church of the nations, you can't see it in those other two pictures, but it's at the bottom. But this is what it looks like now. But in Jesus' time, it was, it was a pretty densely um, planted olive grove. 
So Jesus goes into the valley of darkness to be pressed. And as the story goes, this is what happens. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And again, some some dynamics going on here. This is the first time we've seen Judas since chapter 13 and in the flow of things since earlier that night. And if you'll remember, when Jesus has the last supper with, uh, with the disciples, when he washes their feet, when he predicts, prophesies that someone's going to betray him, that's when Judas leaves. And if you remember that verse in John 13, 30, it says, it was dark. And now it's going to get darker. And it says a detachment of soldiers and officials came out to, to confront Jesus. And they're being guided by Judas. And that word for detachment is a word used to describe a Roman configuration of, store, of soldiers. It could have been maybe 20-ish soldiers. It could have been up to 200, probably the, probably the latter, probably a handful. And the officials refers to um, Jewish um, temple guards who were there in particular. So you have Roman forces and Jew- Jewish forces together who are coming to arrest Jesus. And we'll come back to the significance of that in just a bit. So as we move through this story, it says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, again, so much going on here in this, in this passage. Catch the reality that Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus is not a victim of these, of these circumstances. He's in control of them. And there are a number of ironies swimming around in what we just read. For starters, these soldiers come for him, and he actually goes out to them. Did you catch that? He, he's, not, he's not being captured here. Because he's not afraid, he's, he's not surprised, he's choosing to comply with him. And then they ask, he asks them, who, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and he says, I am he. Now in the original language, the he is not in there. That's put in there so we can have some good English grammar here. But in the original language, Jesus literally says, I am. He reaches back thousands of years to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses had been summoned by God, told by God, you were going to go free my people. And as Jesus and, and God the Father, excuse me, Moses and God the Father are having this discussion about how that's going to go. Remember, Moses says, well, what if they ask which God sent me? Which God should I tell them? And you remember what God the Father says in Exodus 3? You say, I am that I am sent you. My friends, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament, Exodus 3, where Jesus is saying, I am. And once again, here comes some more irony. They come to arrest Jesus, and they instead are arrested by his majesty. They literally fall on their faces. John is the only gospel writer of the four who catches these details for us. It's just an astounding, profound, and moving picture. And so this is what continues to happen. He asked them once again, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I tell you, I am he. 
If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. And for those of you who have been with us in this series, you remember that Jesus said that in John chapter 6, verse 39, when he declared himself to be the bread of life. He declared that he would lose none of those who, who follow him. And then we just saw it in, in the, the amazing sermon that, that Sean gave us last week in the passage that precedes this. In John 17, Jesus also prays that he would lose none of those who follow him. And this is now playing out. This prophecy is being fulfilled. Again, because Jesus is not a victim of these circumstances, he is weaving them to accomplish the plan. So what's, what's the plan? Well, it's, it's God's divine rescue mission, right? It's the fulfillment of the promised one, the chosen one, Jesus, who would come and die on a cross and remove from all those who would ever choose to trust and believe in him and follow him, remove their sin and selfishness and in turn give them his righteousness, power for right living, right relationship with God and, and with others. And so God is enacting the divine rescue plan but it doesn't really look like it. I mean, let's enter this story on another level here. Can you imagine what was going through? Can I imagine what was going through the mind of the disciples as all this is playing out? I mean, on one hand, we're looking at this, you know, in retrospect, thousands of years after it happened, and we, we know the full story, and it's actually quite comical. You know, here comes this detachment of soldiers, Romans and Jews, who are going to arrest God? Seriously? You're going to arrest God? But to the disciples, could it not have felt like their entire world is falling apart? This is an unmitigated disaster. Jesus was supposed to be the promised one, the chosen one. You ever read Psalm 2 about what the Messiah is going to do? This is not Psalm 2. How in the world is, is this working? You, you ever felt like that? With what's going on in your life today, can you sign on to this reality that God is working his divine rescue plan? That he is in the process of bringing his kingdom? That he's in the process of eventually making all wrongs right? Restoring and returning everything to what God always intended it to be? You picked up your phone and read a news feed lately? Does it feel like that? How do you think it felt to the disciples? I mean, things are falling apart. How is this happening? And now our story begins to zero in on Peter. Remember what Peter said when Jesus once again was predicting in the earlier chapters of John, John 13 actually, that he was going to, to be arrested and, and, and be killed? And what does Peter say? I would lay down my life for you. And he actually follows through on that. Look what happens. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So the soldiers go to arrest Jesus. And by the way, we're not just talking any soldiers. There were Roman soldiers there. They were the world superpower at the time. Best trained military force in the world. If you come at a Roman soldier, you best not miss. And Peter did. He missed one of the Jewish temple guards. 
Maybe this guy ducked really soon. Maybe Peter was more of a fisherman than a soldier. We, we don't know. But for whatever reason, he cuts off his ear. And the other gospels tell us that Jesus heals Malchus's ear. John is the only one who gives us the identity of the servant. It's, it's this guy by the name of, of Malchus. And then things go from bad to worse. In their panic, all the disciples abandon Jesus. But two, John the writer, the author of this gospel, and, and Peter. And we'll look at their story in just a minute. But this is what happens next. Then the detachment of the soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And we saw that earlier in, in John. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what's wrong with this picture? Everything. Everything is wrong with this picture. I, I kept uncovering new lists of things that were wrong with this whole judicial process. What's wrong with this is th these Jewish leaders are literally breaking their own law in how they're arresting Jesus. In fact, they don't just arrest him, they interrogate him. Annas wasn't the official high priest. He had been deposed by the Romans. So in Jewish thinking, the high priest was a life appointment, but in, in, in Roman governance, he wasn't the high priest. This was a trial at night, which never was supposed to happen. The full Sanhedrin, the full court wasn't convened. This was just a representation. Again, wasn't supposed to ever happen that way. No witnesses were called before Jesus testified. No one was ever interrogated before there were witnesses that had established what the trial was about. In fact, John tells us there weren't any witnesses at all. And punishment happened before the verdict. For that guy to slap Jesus before a verdict was even pronounced, was wrong. My friends, this is a kangaroo court. This is an incredible miscarriage of, of justice. It's absolutely wrong. And I look at this, and honestly, I begin to think, how could they lose such perspective? How could be, they be so blind to what is happening? Blind to who Jesus is? How, how can they justify their actions? Could it be that they love their darkness so much that they will go to whatever length to stay in it? Or practically speaking, to put it another way, what will they not do to shut Jesus up? They'll do whatever it takes. We ever like that? You ever read something in God's word, hear something in a sermon like this that you don't want to hear? bet you have. I have. Why are we like that? 
Well, John tells us earlier in his gospel why we're like that, why these leaders are like that. This is the verdict. Light, and this is talking about Jesus, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of, of God. You know, not long ago, I was going out to my shed in my backyard at night, and we have this motion light that kicks on when you walk to a certain place. And I walked out there, and the motion light kicked on, and here was this huge rat. Another rat story for you. Huge rat that scurries under the shed. And that's what I think about when I hear that passage we just read about. And, you know, those of you who are maybe reading between the lines here, you're calling us all a bunch of rats? No, I'm not calling you a rat. But I'm saying just like a rat scurries into the darkness, we can do the same thing in our sinfulness and our selfishness. It becomes familiar and so we think that that's what we have to do and that's what we have to live out and that's what we have to be. So we scurry back to it at times. I mean, this, this reality begs the question, are you and I cooperating with the divine rescue plan? Are you, are you responding to God's work in your life because he won't share you and me with sinfulness and darkness? So let's take this a step further. Our, are you looking at something here this morning that you know you shouldn't? Are you involved in a relationship that you know is wrong? Choosing an identity that God's word would say is broken and sinful? Living your truth instead of his? Or maybe even on that note, have you fired all the truth tellers in your life? Because sometimes we can do that selectively choosing how you're going to trust and obey him? Do these questions make you a little uncomfortable? Make you feel like hiding? Because some of them do me. And that's the point. But the irony is in that very passage we just read, the light, even though we fear it at times, the light is actually what brings healing. The light of Jesus Christ the truth of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ doesn't expose our darkness and our sinfulness to shame us. He, he exposes those things to free us. And it's counterintuitive. We feel so exposed and so vulnerable when we call a horse a horse and we own our darkness, we own our sinfulness, but that's actually the path to finding healing. Which brings us back to Peter. Things are, are gonna get even darker. So Simon Peter and another disciple, and this was John's way of describing himself, were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Now look what happens. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there um, with them, warming himself. So he blatantly denies and disowns Jesus. 
And, and there's some scholars who wrestle with this and, and wrestle with whether he lied or not. I, I personally think he did. I think he lies and denies his allegiance, his connection to Jesus because he's afraid. And ironically, in that culture, and this isn't a commentary, this just is what is, in that culture, a servant girl was someone who probably had the lowest standing possible. This person would not be a threat to anyone, but real or imagined, she's a threat to Peter because she may connect the dots that he's a disciple. And so he lies to her. And now the scene shifts to the interrogation now with Caiaphas, and this is what happens in the next exchange with Peter. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And we read this just at face value. We go, well, how did they know to confront him about being a disciple? And the other gospels help us answer this question because Peter had a, had a um, thank you, he had an accent. Couldn't find that word. He had an accent. Do you have an accent? Do I? Yes. Go to the deep south, like I did, many years ago for my first time in Virginia, walk into a Starbucks, order a mocha in what I thought was English, and the guy just kind of looks at me. Says, you're not, y'all aren't from around here, are you? <laughs> really? Do I stand out? Yeah. Everyone has an accent of some kind, right? Depending on where you are. Peter was a Galilean. Galileans had very distinctive accents. So they hear his accent and they pick up on it and go, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he denies it. Lies and denies again. One of the high priest's servants, now this is beginning to get more serious, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, a relative of Malchus's, challenges him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And again, the other gospels tell us that at this point, they were moving Jesus to the next trial. And he was moving through the courtyard as this exchange was happening. And when Peter denied Jesus the third time, it says that Jesus made eye contact with him. And that Peter breaks down and bitterly, bitterly weeps because he's failed him. Because he was afraid. Are you afraid of anything this morning? Now, before we go there, in all fairness, there are dimensions of fear, right? There are certain things you and I absolutely should be afraid of. But parking that for a minute, what are you afraid of this morning? I know. I know what you're afraid of. Do you know why? Because I asked Google. And this is what Google said you and I are afraid of. The number one thing that people are afraid of is public speaking. I guess I missed that memo. Okay. The second, heights. Anyone afraid of heights? Yes, I am in your tribe. Me too. Going to the dentist. I have some dental hygienist friends who would not be pleased to hear that. But okay. Snakes? Anyone afraid of snakes? Okay, a few. Flying? Yeah, me too. I'm just in denial for as long as the plane is flying. That's how I get through that. But okay. Is that really what we're talking about here? No. All of us at some point have to do battle with fear. 
And one of the realities that we see in this passage is that we actually can live out our faith in the face of fear. There are deliberate contrasts in this story. There are contrasts between Judas and Peter, but there are also contrasts between Jesus and Peter. Jesus, knowing what's coming his way, is choosing to trust and obey the Father through faith. And he's modeling to us the empowerment, the life that we can, we can live. Do you remember with me what the most repeated command in God's word is? Far and away. Do not be afraid of heights. Now, do not fear. Do not fear. How many times? 366, actually. One for every day of the year and an extra one in case you forget one. Over and over and over again, God's word tells us, do not fear. You and I do not have to live our lives in fear because fear sabotages faith. It paralyzes faith. It can erode faith. It can even displace faith like it did for Peter. Did Peter lose his faith? No, I don't think so. Did he abandon Jesus? No, Actually, in this story, there are profound acts of courage, drawing his sword to stand between. Okay. So he follows Jesus in the courtyard when everyone else is following Google Maps there away from Jesus, right? I mean, everyone abandons Jesus except Peter and John. And I think sometimes we look at this story and we disparage Peter and go, oh, how could he blow it? And he denies Jesus. And all that is true. But there was also profound courage here as well. Did he ever stop being disciple? No. Did he lose his faith? No. I think he left it temporarily. Did he fail Jesus? Well, yeah, he actually did. But, but here's the kicker. Did, did Jesus know he was going to fail him? He did. He predicted it, remember? In John 13. He knew Peter was going to fail. My friends, it's really important for us to understand that faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is what you do in the face of fear. And please hear that. And I see that validated Old Testament to New Testament in the men and women's lives of faith who were exampled before us. Many times, very afraid, but choosing in the face of that fear, to have faith. And there is an obedience that we can live out when we choose to trust Jesus, even when it's hard, even when we're afraid. You, you and I can do this. We have to remember that failure is neither fatal nor final. I had a pastor who loved to say that. And when I first heard it, it kind of irritated me. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, that's, that's really true. And when we fail, it's not a license to, to keep doing it. God knows we're going to fail. That doesn't mean that we just continue to do that. It doesn't mean that we give up. But it does remember that we have an empowerment to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and choose to follow Jesus again. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail him. And it says that he prayed for him. Jesus said, I will pray 
that your faith will not fail, Peter. Jesus knows that I am going to fail him at times. He knows you're going to fail him at times. And it's that very grace that he extends to us that is the escape from, from that. In fact, if we fast forward to John 21, Jesus very deliberately three times will ask Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because he is restoring him. And we live in a culture that really celebrates failure. We live in a culture where if you fail someone, you're eviscerated. You're canceled. You're condemned. But Jesus' followers don't live like that. We know what it's like to be to fail at something and to be forgiven. So therefore, we can extend that forgiveness to those who even fail us. God's people live a different way because of what we've experienced in our lives. And I saved the best part for last. I skipped a verse in there very deliberately. Those of you who know this story probably said, where is that? Well, this is where it is now. So Peter has just drawn his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals his ear, as the other gospels tell us. And then it says, he commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus drinks the cup of suffering through the excruciation of the cross. And we have this beautiful, powerful picture of the Father and the Son agonizing together, one sending the other to the cross, the other willingly going to the cross so that the Son, so Jesus would substitute himself for us to satisfy the just wrath of the Father and the Son towards sin. So at the end of the day, this is about living out what Jesus has, has done for us. Faith is about following him, even when you're afraid. And it starts with choosing to receive and then believe that he truly is everything he says that he is, that he is the one true God. And that faith is found by choosing to follow him and receive him into your life. And really, that's not a one-time thing. That's an ongoing thing that we do, choosing to trust and obey and, and follow him. Because there is actually a failure that is fatal and final. There actually is one. And it's this. It is the ongoing failure to choose to receive and believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He will come to you in his grace. He will come to me in his grace. Time and time again, offering us an escape from our sin, an escape from the life that we keep wanting to default to, looking for the very life that he promises us. And if you and I choose to keep refusing to choose and trust and obey him, refusing to follow him, then at the end of the day, he's going to give us what we want. If we want to live our lives away from God, he's going to give us what we ask for, and that's going to be what happens. The only true final failure is the failure to believe and receive him as Lord and Savior. So at the end of the day, sometimes it feels like things are absolutely spinning out of control, just like in this story. What it must have felt like to the disciples. Sometimes it feels like God has left the scene, and sometimes all you're left with, it feels like, is your fear. But God promises us there's more. He is always at work. We can always trust him. And at the end of the day, and I have reminded myself of this at times over and over again, at the end of the day, 
no matter how afraid I feel, no matter how final my failure feels, the times I've failed him, failed others, failed people I love in my life, failed myself, what I'm reminded of again and again and again is this. I can trust a God who will die for me. And you can too. And that is what we remember with communion. It is a reminder of all these realities we've just talked about. And so I'm going to invite our servers to come forward and prepare these elements for you. And I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive this bread and receive this cup. And for those of you who are watching or listening online, this is an ideal time for you to gather what elements you can to celebrate communion together. And as you come forward, would you receive these elements and then take them back to your chair and hold on to them because we'll celebrate communion together. But as you do so, is there something you're afraid of this morning? A fear you're doing battle with? And as you receive these elements and as you prepare to take them here in just a little bit together and I'll guide us into that, will you choose to trust God with that fear? Will you choose to follow him again this morning with him wherever he leads you? Let's, let's celebrate him together. Please come forward and receive these elements. On the night that the very events we just read about took place, earlier that night, Jesus and the disciples had a supper together, had a dinner together. And it tells us this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. So let's do that together. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's remember what he did for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for each one of us. That these elements symbolize your body and your blood, your sacrifice for us to remove sin and selfishness and brokenness from us and to give in exchange righteousness and blessing and power for right relationship with you and others. Lord, thank you that we don't have to live in fear, that we can live by faith and trust in you, that even when it feels like our world is falling apart, you are faithful and you promise never to leave or forsake us, but to walk with us and be with us. Lord, thank you so much that our failures are not fatal and they're not final, that there is forgiveness and hope and redemption in you. Would we not forget that? And we celebrate that by what we've just done. In Jesus' name, amen. A good tradition that we have here at Grace is that when we celebrate communion together, we take a second offering. And these resources exclusively go to helping people who find themselves in a difficult place. These pay rent, pay medical bills, put food on the table, repair cars. I could go on and on and on. But in the name of Jesus, these resources are used directly to help people. So we call this our fellowship fund. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward and receive this, and we'll continue to worship together. Amen. You see, at just the right time, 
When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Because of the reality of the gospel, because of the reality of who Jesus is, what he did, what he has done, what he is doing, you and I do not have to live in fear. Our failures do not have to be our identity. We have hope in a future. If you know Jesus, if you've received him into your life, if you believe him and trust him as your Lord and Savior, every day is a fresh start in him. Every day is a new day. That is your identity in mind. So do not settle for any less. How in the world can we not talk about fear on a morning like this and not have prayer teams available? We do. They're right up here. What are you up against this morning? What are you wrestling with? What are you afraid of? Please don't hesitate to come and pray with any one of us because seeking God is something we do together. This is a safe place to do that, and this is the place to do that. So please consider that. And for those of you who are our guests, man, welcome. Some of you are traveling. We know it's a a three-day weekend, and we only get to have you today. We are so glad that you've been with us. But for those of you who are around and you're checking things out, we would love to get to know you even better. We have this thing called Next Steps on the the screens behind me, and uh, it's just right around the corner in our cafe. We'd love to treat you to a free beverage and just get to know you a little bit better. So we hope that you can stick around and do that. But let me pray his blessing over all of us as we prepare to go from here. Lord, thank you that when it feels like the world is falling apart, and so many times it does, you are still working your divine rescue plan. You are still mending hearts, healing relationships, giving hope, giving strength and courage to those who love and know and follow you to face fear and to choose faith in the face of it. Lord, thank you that all these realities are ours to have. So would we believe you? Would we take you at your word? Would we remember that you are with us as we go from here? We are never alone. You have promised to never leave or forsake us. You are with us. And so, Lord, would we choose to be faithful, to trust and obey you, and to follow you? Lord, thank you for this time to seek you together as we go from here now. Would we live out your truth? Would others be drawn to us because we love you and know you? And Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are with us and for what you've done for us. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. We love you. Thank you, Lord. Go and live for him. We hope to see you next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.